Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by my boon companion, Jeremy Goldcorn, the laoban of everyone's favorite Danway, the one that ends in .com. How are you, Jeremy? I'm very well, Kaiser. So, I, I, I want to... <laughs> It's a, it turned out to be a gorgeous day today. Yeah, amazing. Well, wind kicked up around like nine, eight thirty or so, and then suddenly there went the smog. Obviously, the Beijing Weather Manipulation Department are, are keyed into got the these schedule gi- of gigantic Seneca fans. because they always yeah. always make it a nice day when we're about to record and we have to sit inside the studio. Well, yeah, they they want to keep you in a better mood, so you know. Anyway, I, w- I want to tell you a little story about how I first encountered our guest this week. So. In in 1997, I was playing a show at a club near Liang Machao called Keep in Touch. I had recently rejoined Tang Dynasty, and this was one of our first shows back in the saddle after uh, quite a few years. Anyway, uh, there in the audience was this big white dude. He was air guitaring very convincingly and actually singing along in Chinese, mind you, to all of our songs. It was just it was it was crazy. And then to top all this off. This guy had come to see the show with a friend of his who's an AP reporter named Joe McDonald, whose byline many of you may recognize. Uh, and, and anyway, so Joe says to, to this guy, um, with, you know, I, I don't know if, he, if, if you know him, you know that he has this kind of maddening nonchalance. He says, yeah, I, I know the guitarist. I, we went to high school together. Um, we did indeed, though. I had no idea that he was actually in China at the time. He was, he was at the AP Bureau in Shanghai, and he was just up visiting. Anyway, so after the show, he comes up to the show and with that same kind of, you know, maddening nonchalance says to me, long time no see, which is just the most bizarre thing. Because I hadn't seen him in like, you know, 12 years, like literally 12 years. And he introduces me to this friend of his who was the air guitaring, singing along dude. And that Mando metal loving white dude was none other than Steven Schwankert, with whom I am happy to say I've been good friends ever since. Say hello, Steven. How are you, man? Good evening. Thank you for having me. And uh, welcome to Seneca. It's a long overdue first appearance for you. Thanks. Um, we've actually not gotten anywhere close to introducing who Steven Schwankert is. So, I mean, because you're a guy who re- requires a, a pretty lengthy introduction. So Steven came out to China, uh, I think, originally to write for the story Beijing Scene, which is how that, you know him, right, Jeremy? Sort of. <laughs> yes. It's complicated. Yes. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you have a yeah, story? We sort definitely. of know each other via yeah. Beijing. And when we first met, I was uh, telling him how awful Beijing Scene was. And then about a year later, I was working for it. Anyway. Yes. That all, all happening at Johnny's Coffee, which no longer exists. Yeah, don't look for it. It's no longer there. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny's Coffee was the black and white tile floor. Black and white like tile floor. Yep, they charged you for butter on your bagel, three kwai. Oh, wow. The best and, uh, coffee in northern China. Best coffee in northern China until Starbucks showed up, and they were they were gone about six months after they that. They were, yeah. Starbucks just ate their yeah. lunch. I mean, the first Starbucks was, what, like 1999, 2000? Yeah. 99. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um... So Stephen was actually one of the first bloggers in China. He started ChinaBuzz.com, liking what was that, 98? Yeah, 98, 99. And, and that, that site, I still ever had the coolest logo of any Chinese website ever. Why, thank you. I, I still have a, a China Buzz t-shirt here and there. Oh, you so, do? So, you yeah. do. I would, I would pay good money to have a China well, Buzz Maybe we'll do a retro site. thing and we'll, we'll bring it back. That would be very cool. You should get Dominic to, to print them. Indeed, indeed. Well, he, he, yeah, would, he would do it well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um... He in the, in the in the late '90s under his famous nom de plume, the Village Grouch, uh, during that that first dot com boom, he he was quite famous for his ability to pour scorn on and ridicule on on the most absurd business plans. And 
He's been a tech reporter, a freelance writer, an editor, a cameraman even, right? You were a cameraman at some point. Uh, right? I was a production assistant. A production assistant. Right. Or something but, like that. but I did shoot a feature on, on, on coffee in China, including footage from Johnny's Coffee <laughs> that ended up on CNN. So well, what was... happened to Johnny of Johnny's Coffee? Johnny went back to Colorado, I believe. Okay. And um, I mean, everybody just thought he was going to be hired as the vice president at Starbucks. And I don't know whether happened. he ever talked to them. And they didn't seem to want to have anything to do with him. And that was that. Okay, anyway, poor, poor Johnny. And it was a good place. I, I remember that place yeah. fondly. Uh, today, Stephen is editor-in-chief at The Beijinger and kind of a return to your roots. Right? Well, I, I preceded Jeremy at, at Beijing Scene, and I, I, I'm I'm coming well after him at The Beijinger. So it's a, it's a very strange family the tree. Uh, this is really... A terrible conversation. I I was never at the Beijing. I was at I was the launch editor of that's Beijing. That's right. Yes, that's correct. Basically, the same crew who yeah. are doing the Beijing. Yeah. It's all the same crew. I mean, I think you hired J- Jerry Chan, who's editorial director. Yes, at whom I now work for. Oh, so, right. you yeah. now work for him, but yeah. you and brought him out to work for China Bus. And, and Michael West, Mike Wester, whom I've now known for twenty five years. We were we were university classmates. Um, you know, Mike is now the the general manager of. The Beijinger or Truman Media, Media right. so so I work for him too, and he interned at, at China Buzz. So wow, so yeah, it just shows that I have a very short attention span. Yeah, and then the, the Beijing is just <laughs> terrifically incestuous. Um, anyway, you are best known today, of course, as a passionate scuba diver, founder of Sino Scuba, which is China's first professional dive school, uh, scuba operator, actually, right? Not not, I mean, it's a dive school and a yeah. scuba operator. Same. Right, same thing. So you've led dives to all sorts of sunken parts of the Great Wall, to Lake Hobskull out in Mongolia, all sorts of other fascinating locales around Asia. And this is so cool. I think this is the coolest thing ever. You're a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society. Yeah. That is, that's fucking cool. As well as being the chap- Asia chapter chair for the Explorers Club. Yes. Um, but the reason that we have Stephen on tonight is that he is the author of the just published, and I do mean just published book, Poseidon, China's Secret Salvage of Britain's Lost Submarine. Actually, Stephen walked in tonight to, to the podcast, and he it, it just arrived like two hours yeah, before. It, it, right? just, it just got here. It's hot off the presses. And available now on Kindle, is that correct? Uh, available on Kindle, available on Google Play Store, and also should be in the bookworm any day now. Very cool for those of you in Beijing. Yeah, in a print, print version. Yeah, a print, print version. Press. Yes, right. Very nice. Jeremy's very knocking on it, it tapping the book. Nice hardcover. Real book. You know, we're gonna we're gonna make you sign one and and give it away to one of our readers. Okay, I'd be pleased to do that. One of our listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, anyway, the book and um, actually, there's been a film made about about it as well. Uh, uh, in which Stephen, of course, is is the protagonist. Uh, the 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 book and the film tell the story of of Stephen. As he sets out to unravel the mystery of Her Majesty's ship Poseidon, which was a British sub that went down off the north coast of Shandong in 1931 after uh, colliding with a, a Chinese freighter. Uh, and then the subsequent salvage of that uh, in 1972 by a Chinese crew. So, I, I guess, Jeremy, you, you wrote out a couple of questions, and I think one of them was, was typically Jeremiah. How did you get into diving in this waterless city? <laughs> how did you? I mean, how how does one decide? Hey, so I'm going to take up diving. It's like, yeah. you know, let's go to the Sahara Desert and take up skiing. Right. right. Well, that, that's something. A, that's a very that's a very fair question. Um, in in what happened between uh, China Buzz and you know the rest of my checkered career is that I spent two and a half years in Hong Kong, and while while I was in Hong Kong. 
two th- very related things happened. Number one was my father passed away, and I, I, I had been diving with my father since I was 10 years old uh. because diving was the first thing I ever wanted to do. Um, when I was three years old, it was like, you know, I was like Rain Man with Jacques Cousteau. You know, I, th- I think Disney was on, but Jacques Cousteau was really the show that I wanted to see. And, and um, from the moment I started watching that, it was I wanted to do that. I want to dive with whales and sharks and dolphins. And um, I was not a dinosaur kid. In first grade, I didn't carry around dinosaurs. I carried around sharks and things like that. So, oh, wow. But um, so my father passed away in... Uh, very late 2001 and while I had been here in Beijing sort of for the first stint 94 to 2000 I didn't have any chance to do diving I, I wasn't making that much money it was all it seemed all very far away there was absolutely no diving in China at the time certainly no recreational diving and it was just sort of something I couldn't do I was focused on China at the time mm-hmm. so um, when I was in Hong Kong, my father said, you know, why don't you, you know, go, go on a trip somewhere, go to Thailand or go to the Philippines or, you know, take a course. And, and I just never kind of got around to it. And then after he passed away, I thought, you know, maybe that's something that I should do. You know, I was, I was definitely sort of pondering the meaning of life at that point. And, and I thought, you know, diving something that I've always done and, and maybe I should, I should go back to it. Um, and the other thing was I inherited his dive gear mm-hmm. because I, d- I didn't have any gear of my own, and, and I felt like I needed to put that gear to use. Yeah, to honor him. Yeah, and, and to put his gear on and go diving with it, I thought, okay, well, that, that's cool. And um, so I went and I took a course, and um, you know, about nine months later, maybe a year later, I qualified as a PADI instructor. So then not so long after that, I ended up moving back to Beijing. And when I got here, I didn't want to just sort of say, oh, well, that's it. There's no water. So I started to look around for basic infrastructure, tanks, weights, a compressor. And I was able to find those things. Not a lot of it, but... And then I thought, well, you know, it'd be great to, to just teach for fun. And, and I was really bored writing about technology. And, and so I was, I was really tired of doing that. And I didn't want to continue this identity as a, as a, as a, as a technology reporter. So I started to teach people for fun, and it really just took on a life of its uh, uh, of its own, and I, I let it do that. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people who don't know that I write, and there are a lot of people who don't know that I dive, and I'm I'm fairly happy with those parallel universes. But, but the you know, specifically why Beijing? The most important thing for diving is not water. The most important thing for diving is people who want to go, you know, or, or people who are, who are enthusiastic participants. And if you look, for example, at the U.S., you can see people, you know, people are getting certified in the Great Lakes, they're getting certified in quarries, they're getting certified in, I know one guy who got certified in an irrigation ditch. Um, you know, <laughs> I, don't, ditch. I don't necessarily want to dive that badly, but I think it's cool that people do that. So that, that part of it never bothered me because I always thought, well, we can always go somewhere else or, you know, we'll, we'll find places, we'll find reservoirs, we'll find lakes. And um, because we have such a short diving season here, that's what I spend a lot of the winter doing. Winter. Well, in other words, the, the the you know the off season starts basically now, and water won't local water won't be warm enough to dive in until maybe June. Oh, right. So I spend a lot of my time looking at maps and now looking at Google Earth, and you know that's how I ended up diving a lake in Mongolia. Was I realized that there was a large lake in Mongolia, and I kind of said almost as a joke, "Gee, I wonder if we could dive that." And three years later, I was standing there knee deep in it. So um, it it 
diving in Beijing forces you to be very creative, and it 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 just makes you look at diving as something other than just seeing pretty fish. I've always thought that innovation's best friend is adversity. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's, it's great. Um, so what, let's, what let's move on to the book, I think, because we're yeah, okay, okay, of, sure. Of, of running running a little too long, we haven't even started on the book. How, how did you get interested in the the wreck of the Poseidon? Well, you could say that I found a, a submarine using Google. And, and what happened was, um, you know, people who are uh, longtime Beijingers will remember Edlan Franco, who is, uh, you know, probably the greatest historian of Beijing that's never written a book. And I, I hope that that's, you know, I, I, I almost feel... He'll do it one day. ...ashamed that, that my book is coming out before, before Ed's book is coming out. But, um, but Ed and I were talking about various diving things that I was doing. He was always interested. He's not a diver himself, but he was always interested in, in the things that I was working on. And he said, you know, if you, if you're looking for something interesting to go dive, you should go dive these, you know, these, these wrecks from the 1894, uh, 1895, you know, Sino-Japanese war, the Jiao Wu And, and, um, you know, and I thought, actually that makes sense. Those are giant iron targets. They should be easy to find. Um, and I thought, okay, good, good suggestion, Ed, you know, and he gave me some material and he sent me more. And so in the process of trying to find more information about that, now that, that conflict basically took place in two places. Number one is, um, sort of the Yalu river mouth on the, sort of the the Bohai, yeah, sort of the Bohai seaside, not the, not the uh, Sea of Japan side. And then the other place was um, off the coast of Weihai. So, so if you think of the, sort of the eastern tip of Shandong province, basically out that way. And because the Weihai was the then known as Weihai Wei was the the um, home port for for the the first modern Chinese navy, at least in northern China. It was a British colony too for a little while. Right. It? And so after the war, it becomes first it, it falls into Chinese hands. Oh, sorry, it, it falls into Japanese, Japanese hands, hands first, yeah. and then it it ends up sort of as as part of the new territories deal, uh, and ends up in British hands for a while. But Not a colony, a, 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 a settle. Oh, I don't know concession. what concession. Okay. Right. So that that's why there was a. You know, when people ask, you know, why was a British submarine operating in that area? That's why. But so, you know, I'm I'm Googling and I'm looking up, you know, I think I put in the magic explorer search terms of way high and shipwreck. (laughs) And, you know, about result number eight on the page said something about, you know, British submarine lost off way highway 1931. And I thought, huh, I've never heard about any any British submarine out there. And so I clicked the link and this photo of a, of course, sepia tone. Sepia is always the explorer's favorite color. Um, but this, this sepia tone photo of this submarine downloads and above it, it's at HMS Poseidon. And so I read that page and it talked about how the submarine had, had sunk in a collision with a co- with a freighter. It was just, just an accident. But then it's, you know, it had this very interesting history behind it. And the more I read, the more I wanted to read and the more I wanted to know about it. And that's really how I got started. Much of the interest in it historically was because of the circumstances of the escape of some of the people from, uh, and this is how you, you, you begin the book, talking about uh, I, how many of it was like four, five or six people who were in the torpedo room at the front of, of the submarine. Right. So I, I, I think there are eight people in the in the torpedo room. And, you know, the, the submarine goes down in four minutes. 30 guys scramble out of the conning tower. It's like 126 tower. feet down, right? I mean, it's, right. It's like, right, so about, about 40 meters, right about the, the, yeah, I'm sorry. the edge of, of what we would consider recreational diving depth. So 
Um, 30 guys get out, including all the officers, before it goes so down. As it's sinking, that kind yeah, of... Yeah, they get out. Like, yeah, getting they're, out of there's the enough room. time while it's flooding. They, they, the captain orders abandoned ship, and, and they get out. So then there are 18 men in sort of the rear compartments, and then there are another eight up, up front in the torpedo room. So the 18 in, in, the, in the rear have they never... Perished. You know, they, they perished. And then of the eight in the front, um, five of them... Uh, Sorry, six of them made an escape, and of those six, five of them survived, including a Chinese mate's assistant who had had no previous training on what was called a Davis gear. Now, Davis gear today, we would call it a rebreather. It's basically, it, it's the best Halloween costume since it's October. It's the most terrifying Halloween <laughs> costume. Google, Google it on, on Google Images. Um, but uh, it's basically just a leather bag with some soda lime in it, to absorb some of the carbon dioxide, and it has a, a little uh, oxygen container, pure oxygen, which today you wouldn't use, but it has a pure oxygen container, and it allows you to breathe long enough so that you can make it to the surface from your down submarine. Mm. But this had never been actually done successfully. Um, it, they had trained on it. Most of the submariners would have trained on it, but they only trained in a 15-foot pool. These guys are now, you know, at 126 feet, you know, and so... Uh, but... Um, they made it, the, the Chinese mate's assistant made it with, you know, maybe five or 10 minutes of training from one of the, you know, one of the ratings that was there. And, um, that made the whole Rex, uh, historically significant, mm -hmm. um, because this approved the concept that submariners could rescue themselves. Um, that was number one. And then that knowing that, that, that was possible, they could then, uh, there were then, uh, naval architectural changes made in in first in every submarine in the Royal Navy they installed what were called escape hatches so you could equalize the pressure quickly by flooding the the, mm -hmm. the, the chamber and then your your men would go out you'd flood it and you you'd try again um, and then the the other thing was uh, later on they all of the people who escaped from the torpedo room got the bends okay what we call the bends also known as decompression sickness mm -hmm. Nitrogen and, bubbles in your blood. Yeah, nitrogen right. bubbles in the blood. And um, some, some of them quite badly. I mean, we, at least one or two of the men were disabled uh, for the rest of their lives as a result of this accident. But um, there was, a t there was some, some research done on them later on during World War II that proved that a single incident of decompression sickness was enough to cause what's called dysbaric osteonecrosis. It's just a, a bone degradation that occurs from pressure-related injuries. And that, that, has, that, has, that resonates to me as a diver today and to every other diver. In fact, I just finished a, a, an eight-day course on deep diving, and they actually referred to, to the Poseidon in, in the text. Oh, wow. So it was amazing to see that sort of at the end of this whole you know, did journey. you did you raise your hand and say hey 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 I uh, just just wrote a book uh, on I that. did indeed. <laughs> okay, so um, the, the 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 sub crashes. You you find the story, um, but that's just part one of the story, right? That you tell in the book. Yeah, the, the 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 book is basically divided into at least in my mind, it's divided into thirds. Um, the the first third is really about the the circumstances and you know, the submarine itself and, and, you know, who was a Royal Navy submariner in the 1930s? Why were there Royal Navy submarines in way high? Um, Why were there? Because, um, as we said, the, the way high had become a concession and, um, actually way high ended up being the first, uh, special administrative region. Uh, if you want to look at it that way, 
it was returned to Chinese sovereignty on October 1st, 1930. But the, uh, there was an island in Weihai Harbor called Liugong Island, Liugong Dao, and that was leased for a further 10 years by the Royal Navy because uh, all the Royal Navy's other um, Far Eastern bases were either Hong Kong or Singapore. And frankly, for a good part of the year, they were just too hot to train, especially especially in the summer. Mm-hmm. So to be able to go up to Weihai and not, you know, just be oppressed by the heat, you know, remember this is certainly pre-air conditioning. And to be able to do that and have this nice environment. And plus the other thing was, you know, in grander geopolitical terms, there were Japanese holdings, uh, Russian holdings, some French holdings, some German holdings, all in that area, both on the north and south sides of of, of Bohai, of, of the the Bohai Sea and, you know, the British... As well as all the entire east side of it. I mean, Korea was, is entirely, at this point, under Japanese hands. Right. So, so the British, this was sort of their northernmost outpost. And, um, you know, it was never fortified the way that Dalian was, for right. example, in Port Arthur. Port Arthur yeah. but, um, but, you know, Weihai had its contribution. And it's funny because if you go there now, you see all these old colonial homes and you think, wow, these would be such lovely sort of summer bed and breakfasts. And, um, you know, they, they're just sitting there and many of them are, are rotting away. But um, Before we move on from this part of the story, so the, the submariners who escaped... Uh, they pop up on the surface of the ocean, and, and then what happens? Are, are there ships around? How do they get rescued? There were, there were lifeboats around at that point because um, the, the accident was, first of all, there were 30 survivors immediately. So they're in the water. They scramble over to the ship that collided with Poseidon, and they climb up. And then they demand to use the radio. And, you know, they're dealing with a Chinese crew and a, and a, and a Japanese captain, but they were still able to get the message out that Poseidon had gone down. It had also been, the singing had also been witnessed by the target ship. Poseidon was exercising at the time, and the, to- the, the um, ship that it was supposed to fire a torpedo at actually saw the collision and saw the sinking. So they responded as well. Um, so there were boats in the area, you know, w- waiting for, for uh, either men to come up, which I'm, I don't think they really expected, um, but you know, also for, for salvage operations, for rescue operations to begin. Let's fast forward now to the, the next section. Uh, so the first section is about the wreck itself and, and the circumstances. Life as a submariner in the 1930s in, in the Royal Navy. Uh, what's, what's the next section of the book? So the second part of the book really is about the aftermath of the sinking, um, why it's significant. Um, you know, now that, now that someone, that someone being me, has had a chance to look at the the complete history, um, we can draw a number of conclusions that, that aren't really part of the official history. First of all, the Chinese mate's assistant, who is just known as Ahai, you know, I mean, it's like, it's like going down in history as like Big Jimmy, you know, it's just, it just tells us nothing. I mean, you know, but he's usually left out of the story because he's not a Samariner. He's just sort of a, a local hire, if you will. Sure. And, um, you know, to me, his, his story is, is very much a part of this. The other thing is that there was another mate's assistant that died aboard Poseidon. Um, he, there was not enough gear to go around. Ahai gets a set of gear because he's not freaking out, essentially, at the, at, at the time. And also, um, you know, he's the elder. He's the elder of the, of, of the two. He was probably 15. And then Ho Sheng, who didn't survive, was probably about 12. Um, and, and, you know, so it's easy 
to make this kind of, you know, oh, our lost submariners. But actually, you know, a, a, a Chinese boy died aboard the, the submarine as well. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, you know, there were losses on both sides. Um, so I thought that was that was quite significant. You know, the, the, the stories from the torpedo room don't really match up to what we now know. Um, we know that uh, Ho-Shung was knocked unconscious and that there was a, you know, the, the, the account is that, oh, well, we're, you know, we'll bring him up unconscious because he's just so hysterical now. He's just, he'll never get out. And, and then there's another submariner who's lost in the torpedo room. But the way it's described is very, um, how shall I say it? It's not suspicious, but, you know, they, they were all standing on a wire, okay? They had rigged up a wire so that as the torpedo room flooded with this cold water, that they wouldn't be exposed nearly as long. And then they say, you know, uh, Hughes dropped off the line. Or, you know, suddenly the next time we turned on the light, he wasn't there. Well, the torpedo room isn't that much bigger than the apartment that we're, that we're recording this in. You know, you, you could do a search, you could call to him, you could shine your light around. It just seems very odd that all of a sudden he, he's not there. And, Hughes um, drew the short straw, maybe, like the, the, they didn't think that the Davis apparatus would be able to deal with that many people? Well, he, used, he, he clearly used up his oxygen prior to any attempt at an ascent. Okay. And, uh, um, you know, he was getting a little bit... You know, not British as 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 they described it. Um, he was losing his cool for sure. But it makes you wonder if they knocked one person unconscious. The other Locked thing is their words. The other Americans. thing. The other thing you have to you have to remember about this escape is a torpedo hatch is not like any other hatch. It's not just a big round hole that you go straight up out of. A torpedo hatch is angled. So to get yourself out of it, it's great for torpedoes to go in and be loaded, but it's not great if you had just, you know, if you were coming out of a flooded room and you had to to go up through it and bend yourself out of this hatch, uh, you know, while you're in an emergency situation. And there's five guys behind you who want to do the exact same thing. Right. So, um, you know, but that said, I mean, you know, it took a lot of guts to do what these guys did. Mm. And, um, you know, they earned their place in history for sure. Okay. Let's, let's fast forward to, to, to the actual salvage. I mean, and, how, and we'll, we'll tell your story. How did you figure out that the submarine that you thought was there wasn't there? So to, to me, any, I, I never really planned to do a whole lot of uh, original Chinese language research because I figured, look, it's a British submarine. All the records are at the, the National Archives or the British Library. You know, everything's in. Everything I need is in English. You know, I, you know, maybe some some color from some local newspapers would be nice, but you know, there's nothing really to be discovered. And that was, without question, the biggest mistake, or the, or the biggest wrong assumption that I had. So um, it, it was very strange. I. I would continue to Google the same search terms again and again, just to just to see if, if new new so what happens when you use Google and not my do. <laughs> well, uh, you're going to eat those words in a I, second. I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> the the um, so I you know I would I would Google and I would go you know five pages in ten pages in you know whatever it is and during one such survey I noticed on you know page seven or eight that there was a reference to some online novel that mentioned Poseidon. And I thought, well, that's weird. Why does that? So I looked at it, and it was, it was a fictional story. It's kind of a Zelig or a, a Forrest Gump sort of, you know, I was there, mm-hmm. you know, type story. 
And Poseidon is mentioned, and it was a Chinese language um, novel written by a former Taiwan military officer. And um, but at the end of the book, there was a glossary of the English terms and the Chinese terms, and that was the first time I ever saw a Chinese rendering of the name Poseidon. It, it, that particular rendering was Hai Shen Hao, mm-hmm. and um, literally so, sea god. Yeah, literally sea god. Right. So I started googling that, and the movie Poseidon had come out right at not so long before that. So there was just a lot of noise. The if you movie, will. the Poseidon Adventure. No, the remake of the Poseidon oh, Adventure, okay, okay. which was just it. just oh, called yeah. Poseidon, and and so there was a lot of you know reviews of that and so forth. So I started to to add some other terms in like 1931 and way high and so forth. And I saw so I f- I found a snippet of an article. It was on a China Post site, um, you know, like a China Postal System site, and it was from a magazine I'd never heard of called Modern Ships. And it had this blurb, and it said, why in 1931 was the British submarine Hai Shen Hao, you know, HMS Poseidon, operating off the Chinese coast when it sank, you know, in a collision? And then why in 1972 did the Chinese government something, something the submarine? And it was something, something because, of course, you know, I mean, any, any learner of Chinese will appreciate this. When you need your Chinese the most, you know, you don't recognize the two characters, you know, that you really need. So I, I found a Chinese friend who was online. I, I sent her the phrase and I said, what does this mean? And she said, raise, lift. And then I copied the whole, you know, the whole passage and I sent it to her and I said, does this mean that the Chinese government raised the submarine off the seafloor? Mm-hmm. And she said, yes. And it was funny because the very first email I sent after I started looking into Poseidon was I sent an email to a guy who is now a good friend named George Malcolmson. He's the archivist at the Royal Navy Submarine Museum. And I asked him, I said, you know, was, was Poseidon ever salvaged? Because the last thing I want to do is go look for something that's not there. And so he said, no, there's, there's, you know, there was a, a, a salvage survey done by the Royal Navy. They decided that it, they couldn't bring it up, so they, they walked away. And, um, you know, so suddenly this suggestion and, you know, it took me a long time to kind of get my head around it. Why would they do it? And especially in 1972, would they have had the capability and so forth? And then finally, um, I was uh, at a later point, I was I was at, at the Hong Kong Central Library and I found an archive copy of this article. And it was much more than a snippet. It was a five page feature all about how Poseidon, why they, why it was raised, um, you know, why, why, how it was done and, and, and significant detail. And so I thought, boy, this is certainly not a plot development that I expected. And, um, so after that, it was, it was more about answering why that happened. I mean, so to, to me, the baffling question is how is it possible that the British government was completely unaware of this Chinese salvage? I mean, well, if, if, if people were writing about it, uh, what, you know, 20 years, 30 years later in, in magazines that you could just buy off newspaper stands, uh, how is it that, I mean, it, it doesn't seem like it was altogether that secret. Well, you would think that, you know, for example, the number of publications that are clipped by the, by the average news gathering organization in Beijing, you know, you, I don't think they would have run across modern ships, but they might have, you know, um, you can buy it on you know, I think it's eight quai now. You know, you can buy it on, on any newsstand in Beijing. But clearly nobody was doing that kind of open source research. Or if they were, they they just didn't pay attention to it. But it wasn't by it appearing in this magazine, in this general interest magazine, you know, it wasn't really a big secret. 
and w- w- how how long until you you uh, notified the, the the British Naval Office that that. Uh, so I approached the naval attaché here, okay. and I'm sure that he thought, "What's with the Yank and you know, like the conspiracy <laughs> theory?" In his eye. Yeah, you know, it's like, <laughs> do, you know, does he want to salvage something? You know, like what's 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 his angle? And in the beginning, and in in the beginning, I think you know he was he was uh, rightly very suspicious, okay. and then as I was able to find more and more references to this salvage, he realized that this was something that he had to look into. And then... Um, and did it ever actually become an issue between the Chinese government and the, the no, UK government? No, it's... it's um, ultimately, it was resolved because uh, the, we invited members of the Poseidon family. So, so all the survivors are long gone, but you know many of the, the children are still around and certainly the, many of the grandchildren are still around. And so we invited some families to come out and and I think we had two families or three families, um, all of survivors. None of none of people had actually perished. And um, you know, we went down to Weihai. We had a little remembrance, and then it was covered by the Daily Telegraph. And after it was on the front page of the Daily Telegraph, um, it was it was raised both in in Commons and in Lords. Mm-hmm. And at which point the Ministry of Defense had to do something. They had to say to their Chinese counterparts. Uh, yeah, so did you raise our submarine? And uh, by the way, where are the remains of the 18 submariners and the, and the Chinese boy that were left inside? And, uh, you know, shockingly, I was, I was sitting at my, my ersatz headquarters in Beijing, Union Bar and Grill, and I got a, I got a phone call from, from the Telegraph correspondent, and, and he said, uh, I got to tell you something. And I said, what? He said, the Chinese confirmed. And I said, what did they confirm? And he said they confirmed the salvage. They confirmed to the Ministry of Defense that they salvaged Poseidon. And, wow! And that was—I mean, I just never expected that. I never thought that 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 would happen. But they—they they said that they didn't find any any remains, um, and that they had you know no sort of further records about where you know where the where the the, the materials had gone off to. It was and, what just sort of ship broken and 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 sold for scrap, right? Yeah, it was broken up, and I'm, I'm sure there are, you know, bicycles in Dongbei that are still, you know, have pieces of the Poseidon, Poseidon. you know, fillings in them. But um, can, can I ask a point about the <clears throat> the remains? Uh, is something that always interested me. I mean, in a, in a shipwreck, how how likely is it that you would find remains after all this time? Wouldn't wouldn't they be eaten up by the fish? This is an excellent question. So, I think because of of shows like CSI, we think that there's a formula. You know, if you submerge human flesh in salt water for X period of time, for it 41 will, years. Yeah, then, then this will happen. But I mean, you can you can dive all over the South Pacific, which is teeming with, you know, with, with life, teeming with fish, teeming with bacteria. And you can still swim into wrecks and see, you know, remains of Japanese uh, soldiers and, 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 you know, naval personnel. You know, you can see skulls and, and, and bone and so forth. So those things tend to last. But you you just can't say definitively, would you find something? Now, that refers specifically to remains or organic, you know, organic human material. But if you talk about personal effects, you know, if, if my hand rots away and I'm wearing a wedding ring, well, the ring is going to last or my boots will last or my Davis gear will last. So I can accept um, the, 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 the suggestion that, that no remains were found, 
but it's a little bit more difficult to believe that no personal items were found. For example, they, it states very clearly, not only in the modern ship's account, but in other accounts, that the navigation log from Poseidon was found. Now, that's, you're talking about paper mm-hmm. that survived in water for 40-something years, and there's more than one reference to you know, a little bit of information being gleaned out of it. So, you know, if the paper survived then certainly metal a would have survived. Yeah, yeah, a watch, right. a ring. You know, a lot of these guys were young, but they were married. And But it was 1972, know. so records would not have been kept. It wasn't a time when... Well, let's I, remind ourselves what China was like in, in 1972. 1972. People yeah. didn't exactly give a shit about an old piece of bone um, but, at the bottom of the sea. But that said, I mean, you know, th- there are there have been numerous books written about some very horrific things that have happened in the last 60 or 70 years based on records from, you know, famines and other horrendous things that have happened. And so I don't really buy that. If 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 that's their way of saying, okay, we admit it and you know, let's leave it there. I, I can kind of accept that. But. So let's take take us forward uh, without you know giving away any spoilers, um, and and talk about this. I mean, and also bring in the film. I mean, Arthur and Luther Jones made this documentary uh, where you are the star. I mean, I think you're you're now going to be in IMDb and all that, which will be very cool. Well, I was already in IMDb. Oh, but you were. Thank you very much. But um, no, the, the the film is the film is a little bit different. <laughs> he says. He says modestly. So, so modestly. Um, the. The film is a little bit different because even though I write the last third of the book in the first person, um, because I really just had to describe you know, how the search went and, and, and things that happened, um, the film is, at least for me, it's much too much about me. The first time I watched it, I just didn't You're find really me. I didn't find me compelling enough to watch for, you know, 90 minutes. Um, but, but Arthur tells me that, that I'm supposed to feel that way. So, but you know, you learn, you learn three things about you watch, watching yourself on film, or at least I did a, Oh my God, my New Jersey accent is really strong. B, you know, Hey, schwank, have a salad every once in a while, would you? And, and, you know, um, (laughs) you know, number three, I forget what number three is, but, but, you know, you learn a lot about yourself watching, watching yourself on film for, you know, 70 something minutes as, as the cut is now. But the film really is more about, um, you know, sort of one man's quest to bring the truth to light. Right. And um, did you run into and during the course of your researches, did you run into a lot of bureaucratic red tape? I mean, was it difficult for you, or did you find that authorities were mostly helpful? They they were they were neither. They okay. were they were not helpful, and they did not actively impede. impede. Okay. The only the only time that we had trouble and and. In this case, with we, I'm, I'm, I'm including Arthur and Luther and, and, and Luo Tong, the producer, um, was when we tried to contact, th- there are two salvage engineers that are, at least one of them is still alive, you know, uh, that, that were there at Poseidon. And I thought, man, if we can get these guys, they can really, I, I don't know what it was. I thought they, they could tell us, but I just thought, my God, it's like somebody who's actually seen Poseidon with their own eyes because that was really missing from the whole story. That, that for me was the biggest disappointment. Are there photos? Have you found any photos of the salvage? Have you no, no, no photographic record, nothing. Um, and, and I thought, you know, you know, this guy said that he still had the navigation log. I mean, to actually see something that came from Poseidon, that's amazing. And, you know, we, we got the phone number. We managed to get his phone number, and you know, uh, a couple of researchers called, and and I called, and 
he, he was just he just said call the salvage bureau and 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 we called the salvage bureau and they just said well we can ask but you know if they don't want to talk they don't want to talk and they just didn't yeah. want to talk about it so i know that there had been a little bit of official communication because um i also went to see one of the guys that wrote the modern ships article mm -hmm. and he told me then he said oh uh, well somebody said to me that foreigners might be contacting me so obviously somebody you know, was some, yeah. some of it was noticed but i mean it you know it's it's quite old history i mean it's not like it's not like you know we it's not like it was a nuclear submarine and they raised a device from it it's you know it's just an old sub the, the film's now been been uh, at a few festivals how's it how's it been received um it, it's well people appear to like me more on screen than i seem to like me which is which is good um i mean the festival circuit is brutal uh frankly and i i still hope that poseidon or the poseidon project as the film is known will find a life uh, on television. I think that's really where it belongs. I think, uh, you know, a British television audience and maybe other television uh, audiences will enjoy quite a bit because, you know, there are really some great characters and I'm just sort of the vehicle. I mean, the, the most interesting person in the story is Doreen Ridsdale, whose father kept a journal. And I mean, it was like, I mean, it was just pure gold in terms of information. He he was assigned to Poseidon during construction. So while it was still being built and he was there, you know, through the the you know initial service and then the collision and the ride home and the whole thing and he writes so vividly and so beautifully that you know I was it, I I really when I started writing the book I thought you know this is really a daunting task because I have to write better than Walter Jeffrey her her father and um, she's really the most interesting person in the film I'm, I'm well I, just, I really look forward to seeing it yeah. and um, when are we going to be able to see a copy I mean um, I think probably either the end of this year or, or early next year. It, it really depends on... you guys would just put it on the internet. Yeah. Like, like decent people, business. yeah. You know, so we, decent, we, just stick it on the yeah, internet. Yeah, just, just make it free yourselves. like everything else yes. and just, just take the loss. But, that's it. But, uh, no, I think, I think, I think it, it's, it's no, going to... don't listen to me. It's going to show... It's actually showing right now. It's showing, it's showing this weekend or this, this, these three days... Uh, October 9th, 10th, 11th at the Friday Harbor Film Festival in Washington State. Oh, great. So and then it's got got a couple more dates after that. Let's talk about another thing. I mean, some you know, another a couple of topics that you're really passionate about. One of them, of, of course, is is diving. I mean, I think there are a lot of people who uh, are are really curious about what some of the hot dive spots are in and around China. Uh, what are some of the places? I, I know that you've talked about diving sunken parts of the Great Wall before. Where where are such places? Where where does one go? Is it off of you know Shanghai Guan or is it? No, the, no. The, the underwater Great Wall, first of all, we don't really do a lot of coastal diving because the, the, the coast is highly regulated. Okay. You know, the coast, the, the Chinese coast should be viewed essentially the way airspace is viewed. It's just, it's just highly regulated. You know, if you want to take a boat out, you know, for example, for our remembrance in Weihai, we tried to get permission to go out to the site of the accident. And, and the answer from beginning to end over about four or five months of negotiations was no, no, and no, hmm. you know. And um, so they certainly wouldn't want foreigners dropping into the water with scuba tanks. That that that's not really a welcome activity. Sure. But lakes, you know, lakes and reservoirs. Although the, the reservoirs around um, around Beijing are pretty restricted now. Um, I've dived in a well. There's a well in Fangshan that's quite a popular. Um, 
not only a popular dive training spot, but also a popular nude swimming spot for <laughs> local men. Um, oh, oh, so it, it is a little bit of a mixed bag when you when you show up and and you know want to get some training done. But the the Great Wall is uh, it's the Panjako Reservoir. It's about three and a half hours from here, and um, essentially after. What about Huanghuacheng? That that section right there. Huanghuacheng uh, is not so keen on divers. No, it's it's no. there's not as much to see. Number one and number two, they, you know, the biggest problem with diving in China is people just don't want to take the responsibility. Somebody is responsible for wherever you are diving, and they don't really know much about diving, and they don't want you to die while doing it because it's going to be on their head. Right. So I, I mean, all of that is is entirely fair. Um, but there are places where that are just used to divers now in this area, this part of the Great Wall, where you have three or four hundred meters of wall that is underwater, depending on on water levels. What about in South China, in in like Taihu or any any of the big lakes of of the south? Um, yeah, I mean, there visibility is an issue. Visibility is really an issue in any of the lakes. Sure. But um, this being China, you know, it's visibility is an issue. Um, you know, f- the other thing is that. Diving in China is still, for the most part, entirely DIY. You you bring your own equipment, and you know n- you know you you can't just rent a boat and expect that they're you know if you rent a boat and say take us out to this site and then you drop over the side, th- the guy is going to leave unless you tell him otherwise. The guy is going to leave. He's just going to go back to shore, and and or he's going to think he can pick you up in a half an hour. There's a there's a there's just not a consciousness for you know diving is still really in its infancy here. So. Um, but that's are, you, a, are you seeing it really taking off with 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 Chinese divers? I mean, are, oh, is it really huge, huge, huge? Oh, really? That's but that's the difference huge. is, is I, I remember I asked a Chinese instructor friend, you know, why don't we see more divers at the Great Wall? How come more people aren't excited about doing this? And he said, because people don't think of this as diving. You know, what people want out of diving is they want a beach holiday, they want nice water, nice fish. You come out, you have a beer afterwards, and somebody carries your gear. You know the Great Wall. You know the visibility usually at a maximum is ten meters. Okay. So it's not, you know, this sort of majestic blue water dive. Right. It's it's, it's not coral reefs. Yeah, and that clownfish does kind of make sense. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that's I you know, and and the people who dive in China are people with money, so they don't. It, it's not like you know, in, in for example, in the U.S. you have, uh, and also in the U.K. you have this whole community of sort of blue collar divers, who are just sort of just want to get in the water and get wet and don't have the money or the time necessarily to go on a on a beautiful holiday so they'll dive in a quarry or they'll dive a deep wreck or something like that there are also places like um the thousand islands lake uh in in Zhejiang, which is home to a sunken ming dynasty city which is just the most majestic thing i've ever seen underwater wow you know when yeah. you see I, a, I, I remember you've posted some photos from that when when you when you see a, a seven or eight meter tall Paifang, Pailo, this kind of you know imperial tablet, the likes of which we don't really even see that much here in Beijing. And you dive on it, and your you know your your torch kind of falls upon you know a scene of of daily life or a you know an intricately carved carved dragon, and you're you know you're down you know fifteen twenty twenty five meters. You know you think well, gee, what's I'm, the story of this city? How 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 was the city sunk? Again, it's it's. You know, one of the things that China does particularly well is build dams. Sure. Um, and so in 1959, they decided that this area would be better off as a lake for both both in terms of water resources and agriculture and, and economic development um, than it was as dry land. 
and and when they flooded the area, three villages went with it. You know, there were three of these walled towns went with it, and and this one, Shicheng, the Lion City, is is the the most accessible of the three. The other two are far too deep, uh, even for technical divers. And and uh, they tried to knock the city down, but like in most of these projects, the water came up much faster than they expected. And so now we have this sort of underwater. You'll museum. leave us with some links that we can share with people so they can see For sure. photos and, and and stuff about that. So, Stephen, you're working already on your next book, are you? Uh, I am. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's. I started thinking about a second book, um, you know, well into the writing of Poseidon, but I because it, you're a masochist, or uh, partly because I'm a masochist, but but also I I. At the end of the day, I, I enjoyed the process, and I, and I learned a lot from it, which I think was really what I set out to do in the first place. And um, so the second book, I, I won't say too much, but it's about one of history's all-time greatest maritime disasters, which happened you know, w- within sight of Pudong Airport. And uh, with that information, people should be able to find out what the wreck is. But, you know, if we use Baidu. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe, or, maybe, or maybe not. Yeah. But but you know, I think if you ask the average twenty five year old in China, have you heard of Titanic? They would say yes, and they'd go like this. And they, yeah, and they've seen the they've seen the movie, and they can sing the song. And if you ask them if they've heard of Jiang Yalun, they or you know the SS Jiang Ya, they they haven't heard of the it. SS Jiao Yang, uh, Jiang Ya, Jiang Ya. Yeah, and it was, um, you know, they they wouldn't have heard of it. And well, yet, I haven't. The, the 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 loss of life was, you know, double Titanic. Um, it was within sight of land. You know, there's a whole mystery that can be solved beyond it. It's not just some random iceberg. Have um, you sold the the movie options for this one already? And not yet, but I am taking offers. So, uh, right. you know, cynical listeners should should write in and, and offer. Right, yeah, morbid motherfucker. Yeah. So, but uh, you know, it, it's it's sort of a great untold story, and uh, I can't wait to get into it. That's great. And this, the last thing I want to talk with Stephen about is a, a big passion of his. I know your Twitter handle is quite Great White Shark. And, uh, great Right Shark. Great Great Right Shark. Right Shark. Yeah. Great Right Shark. Right. W-R-I-T-E. Uh, you're passionate about your opposition to the consumption of shark's fin in, in China. What's the state of that right now? I know that there are a lot of people who are involved in that. Uh, and I, I, my understanding is that, that there's been some progress on that front. I mean, in the last five years... And it has, in some ways, almost mirrored the growth of, of diving in China. But and I think one has fed the other, but it, they're not entirely related. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, and I think Beijingers will remember this, that all of a sudden the moon bear issue was on the front page of every newspaper mm-hmm. in Beijing. And once I saw that, I remember thinking, okay, now now we can have the shark fin conversation. You know, it wasn't taboo to talk about these things that were necessarily cruel, but because they were traditional, they were sort of verboten. And you just, you know, it was like saying that so, that a part of someone's religion, you thought it was barbaric, mm-hmm. but but you couldn't talk about it because it was their religion. And, and you know, so now, you know, uh, first of all, the Chinese government is, I think, now in its second year of a three-year phase-out ban on shark's fin. You know, you, you just, you can't order it at a government banquet. You can't serve it. And to be honest, the really, mo- the, the most disgusting part of it is, is that specifically American companies continue to serve it at their corporate events. And, and you know, usually it, it's specifically, you know, American groups that, that tend to wag their fingers and say, you know, you, you naughty Chinese or, or whatever. And in this case, it's, it's, it's appalling that 
American hotel chains and American, you know, I mean, we're talking Fortune 25. You want to name some names here? Sure. Uh, GE has served it uh, at, at corporate events in the last year. Um, I think there are still, I think there are still Starwood hotels that are serving it actively. And, you know, the thing is, is that th there is just no excuse anymore. The Hong Kong government has banned it um, for their own use. The, the Chinese government has banned it. Um, you know, the, the leaders on this issue have been Peninsula Hotels and Shangri-La Hotels, both well-established Asian cha chains, people that, that we definitely thought would not, you know... Be, Get behind this issue. Yeah, we, we thought, you know, these would be the last dominoes to fall. But they have been out in front, and it has really kind of stripped everybody else of their, yeah. of their, their um, excuses. But, you know, the reality is, is people always ask me, you know, do, do sharks eat people, you know, if we go in the blue zoo, aren't they going to, you know, eat us? Well, first of all, I'm the tastiest morsel in the water. So don't fool, you know, don't, don't flatter yourself. I'm, I'm the Kobe cow of divers. Okay. <laughs> so they're going to take a bite out of me first. But beyond that, do you get <clears throat> massage and fed champagne? Uh, absolutely. Steps? Yeah, I do. Beer, beer, beer. I do. Yeah. I'm going to put on uh, a cow suit and go to Japan. <laughs> the, um, play, they play you Mozart. Oh yeah. I mean, I just swim there in my little pen and, you know, but, but one of these days there's going to be a reckoning. But, I mean, you know, if you were to say who is the killer in the ocean, I mean, about 100 human beings are killed worldwide. I mean, Jeremy, you're from South Africa, so that's sort Most of, the, of them you know, that's sort of the buffet <laughs> Australia, line, Australia, to be honest. South, South Africans are the hotter that don't see for But, uh, you know, there are about 100 people killed by sharks worldwide every year. and Way more by hippos. And way more by hippos. And there there are 75 million sharks killed by humans every year for you know, a f for a dish that has no taste and so no medicinal totally value. Winning. I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we are absolutely the killers by far. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the reality is, is, is as a diver, you just don't see sharks diving anymore. You know, when, when I was, you know, diving in the 80s and, and, and in the early 90s, you saw quite a number of sharks. And now you just, you know, I was just in the Philippines for 10 days. I saw zero sharks. Um, you know, you just, you don't really see them anymore. And uh, it's just not necessary. It's, 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 uh, and increasingly they are of greater value to us um, for tourism. You know, the way that, the way we went from whaling to whale watching, you know, now people are realizing, hey, if I'm a dive boat operator, I'm going to make a lot more money than selling sharks. I don't know that we've reached the tipping point for that yet, but I think we're getting there. Great. Well, on that positive note, Let's move on to the section of our show where we make recommendations. And as usual, let's start with Mr. Jinyumi. All right, I've got two, um, both by the English lads who are increasingly taking over here in this town. Uh, one is Robert Foyle Hunwick's recent piece on um, drugs, uh, specifically uh, Special K, ketamine, the, the drug Chinese clubbers love to love. Uh, is that in, 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 in that's Beijing? No, it's on, uh, whatchamacallit, Vice. Vice. Yeah. It's on Vice. Yeah. Oh, and wow. Then, oh, great. Uh, i got to read that James one. James Palmer, um, the, a piece on mistresses. You, you've, you've been I plugging on, James Palmer a lot. I, I like the guy too, yeah. Yeah, he's, uh, as he's he good. himself puts it, he's both handsome and evil, and he writes well. So. <laughs> handsome, my, yeah. He certainly does write well. I will not contest that. <laughs> and he's handsome and evil, Kaiser. Okay. I'm evil. Uh, anyway, but not uh, handsome. Not handsome. No, I'd never make that claim. Uh, diabolical. But uh, Stephen? Um, I'm, 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 oh, wait. I, 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 I can't see you and not say, renounce Christ. <laughs> but, uh, well, thank you. My, uh, 
My, my, it's an my little inside is, joke between us. Forever. My fondness for atheism grows by the day. But um, the um, my recommendation is, uh, since I'm a one one trick 20th century shipwreck pony, uh, I'm going to recommend Death in the Baltic by Catherine Prince, which is the story of the world's deadliest shipwreck of all time. Well, it was the called the Wilhelm Gustloff, and it was... Uh, uh, a Nazi refugee ship that was torpedoed by a Soviet submarine, and nine thousand people went down with the ship. Oh, Christ! Yeah. So it's since my next book is is about a similarly large. I mean, uh, actually, the refugees from the fleeing the Nazis. Yeah, they were they were they were fleeing um, essentially German held territories. So this is you before know, Kaliningrad and and the, you know those kinds of places, Uh-oh. and and they were fleeing back to sort of you know the the fatherland, and they were torpedoed on the way, and nine thousand of them went down with the ship. Accidentally? No, no, it was torpedoed by a Soviet submarine. So it's uh, it, intentionally. I mean, they they knew that that you know this was carrying refugees, and they didn't care. I mean, you know, it's 1945. It's January 1945, and I don't think Soviets, you know, Soviet. Uh, military people were particularly concerned with German civilian casualties at that moment. So, um, but it's a very little-known story, and and uh, Catherine Prince does a very good job of writing about it. Wow, wow. Um, my my recommendation is sort of a continuation of what I made some time ago. I recommended some some months back uh, a band called Nine Treasures, which is sort of a Mongolian kind of pagan folk metal band. I'm going for two more this time. One is sort of a Deathcore band called Ego Fall. Deathcore. Right, no, they're they're a Mongolian style deathcore band. Deathcore. Serious, serious. I mean, evil, evil shit. And uh, the other is called Tenger Cavalry. T e n double g e r Cavalry. I I I recommend that 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 you go on YouTube and watch a video of theirs that somebody. I I suppose it's like a fan video, but it kind of captures this flavor for a song. There's called Wolf Totem. <laughs> kind of predictably enough, uh, which which is just sort of these kind of Ken Burns slow pans over um, paintings done by I don't know who uh, that that show uh, the first you know a gigantic map of the Mongolian Empire and its greatest <laughs> expanse and then from Vienna sort of, to Tokyo right and then and then and then sort of uh, one by one just showing uh, paintings of of Mongolian cavalrymen slaughtering. All the, the other peoples of Eurasia. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds it's, like a it's, winner. It's really fucking fascistic and horrible, and uh, you and love then, it. But, but the music is is pretty eerily great. Yeah, yeah. I got. I, I, there's something about that whole. I mean, the genre of folk metal. Um, the kind of fascists pagan. do occasionally pr- produce good art. It's true. This is true. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> with, with, on, on that <laughs> on note, fascist note, we, we, will, we will end our, our podcast and. We will see you next week. Uh, and uh, thanks very much, Stephen. It was great to have you on, man. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thank you, Stephen. Jeremy, we'll see you next week, man. Well, I'll probably see you later tonight when we're drinking. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>